How mouthy are you? How much of a joker? Do you have a reputation for getting away with mischief? In every society, there are individuals and institutions we're all supposed to respect. There are consequences for flouting the norm, ranging from a bad reputation, to exclusion from society, to a death sentence. If you think that last one's a bit of a stretch, just remember heresy laws. Most of us toe the line, or at least keep our mouths zipped and our snark to ourselves most of the time. Of course, there are those who don't, and some of them aren't really punished for it either. They mouth off at the establishment with enough panache that they get away with it. And we admire them for it. In Spanish, this type of person is called a picaro or a picara, an underdog who stumbles through life playing at being a simpleton, but who's sly when nobody's really looking. There's a significant body of picaresque literature in Spanish, most of it from the early modern period up through the golden age of the 17th century, but the themes repeat up to the present day. The picaro crossed the Atlantic in folk literature and took on a bit of New World flavor. Like their peninsular cousin, American picaros have a slightly skewed but specific sense of justice that informs their ideals and actions, frequently setting them at odds with authority figures, but with copious wit. Do you know a picaro or two? Are you a picaro? This type of subversion looms large in folklore and in everyday life. The picaresque spirit is alive and well in the Hispanic Southwest, where picaros, and sometimes cranky old abuelas, get the better of neighbors, the rich, priests, even saints and devils. But there's one authority figure even a picaro shouldn't cross, and that's death. La Santa Muerte doesn't have it in her nature to let anyone get away with it. Welcome to another episode of Southwest Gothic. I'm your host, Adrienne Montoya, and this is my podcast where I share strange and spooky tales out of the American Southwest. Pull up a chair to my virtual kitchen table for a light-hearted, cozy little chat about the swift arrow of death. Well, things will stay light as long as nobody tries to cross her. The picaro has a good deal in common with the folkloric trickster. You're likely familiar with Anansi, the wise but slippery Spider-Man of West Africa and the Caribbean, Loki, the Norse trickster god, slick-talking Br'er Rabbit in the American South, Coyote in the native Southwest, and numerous anthropomorphized foxes and crows. These figures are irreverent, cunning, and charming. And while Anglo-American imagination isn't quite as rich with the picaresque, Huck Finn could certainly be classed as a picaro. Pedro de Urdemales is a picaro in Spanish folklore and literature. He's a stock character from oral tradition, but his name was also used by Cervantes and other writers. He has his everyday exploits defrauding his neighbors, but also adventures on a grander scale where he tries his wiles on God, saints, and the devil, and gets the best of them, with plenty of laughs for listeners. Someone he never manages to best, though, is death. At least he never manages to elude her for very long. Like it or not, death is a certainty, the end of each and every life, so death is a universal theme in folklore. Many traditions personify death, and in Hispanic folklore, death is a woman. La muerte. La Santa Muerte, even, 
holy death, or saint death. Personally, I appreciate the bookend quality of feminine power that both begins and ends our lives. La Muerte has a very specific image, too. She vaguely resembles the Grim Reaper, though she's not meant to inspire fear like he sometimes is. She might carry a scythe, though at least as often it's a sword, or an axe, or a bow and arrow. Once, in a sketchier, more brujeria part of an herb market in Mexico, I spied a statue of La Santa Muerte decked out with a pair of six-shooters. Although La Muerte is an armed, grinning skeleton in a black cloak, she's often shown with scales in the other hand to represent her fairness and justice. An owl on her shoulder reminds us of her wisdom. She can be a comforting figure, and people do pray to her, like any other saint. In Mexico, especially in the 20th and 21st centuries, the veneration of La Santa Muerte has grown, and she is regarded as the patron saint of the downtrodden and marginalized. In the old Hispanic Southwest, New Mexico and Southern Colorado specifically, death is a respectable lady with another name, Doña Sebastiana. She's the iteration of death who carries the bow and arrow, and I believe that's how she got her name, in association with Saint Sebastian, who was most often depicted in the midst of persecution, pincushioned by Roman arrows. Doña Sebastiana doesn't usually carry scales, because her bow and arrow are sufficient reminder that death can come for anyone, at any time. Her arrows are swift, and sometimes unpredictable. And you thought Cupid was bad. Holy days in the old Spanish Southwest were often marked by processions, which included music, perhaps singing and dancing, statues of saints, actors dressed as Jesus, saints, or other figures from the scriptures, or community members demonstrating penitence or rejoicing, depending on the occasion. One consistent element, though, was the death cart. A death cart is a little wooden cart, sometimes pulled by goats, which bore a carved wooden skeleton, often seated. She was identifiable as Doña Sebastiana by her black shawl and her little bow, with a ready arrow knocked in it. She rode along, grinning at the spectators, reminding them that she was ever-present. She would aim her arrow at each of them one day, no exceptions. This wasn't meant as a threat, only a reminder. But what does a pícaro like Pedro de Ordemales do with a figure as steady as death? One tale you still might hear in New Mexico and southern Colorado takes on that question. It relates a supernatural encounter that began with an illicit roasted chicken, because these are peasant tales. In the trip to the New World, Pedro's vowels shifted a bit and he became Ordemales. And in the north of Nueva España, the kingdom of New Spain, Pedro Ordimalas was sometimes cast as a leñero, a woodcutter, who was poor and a little lazy, but clever. Pedro had been out in the hills all day, cutting wood. It was hard work. The piñon and juniper trees had twisted limbs, full of knots and sticky sap. He was hungry, but he had already eaten the little bit of beans and tortillas his wife had sent with him. He was walking home in the rays of the setting sun, when a chicken wandered across his path. He recognized the chicken as belonging to a neighbor, and he ran to scoop it up. He figured he'd return the chicken. But then, his belly grumbled again. He had plenty of firewood on his back, and his neighbor was careless in letting the chicken wander away, wasn't he? 
If Pedro didn't need it, some fox or coyote would. So he went a ways off the path to start a fire. Pedro sat by his fire in the growing dim, waiting for the chicken to cook through. He heard footsteps, and looking up, he saw someone turning off the path to approach him. It was El Santo Niño, the Christ child. Pedro started to stand out of respect, but decided he was comfortable where he sat. The little child greeted him by name and asked for permission to join him by the fire. Pedro nodded at a stone on the other side of the flames. El Santo Niño looked longingly at the roasting chicken. He was so hungry. Would Pedro share his meal with a hungry child? Pedro laughed. He wasn't sharing this chicken with his own children. Why would he share it with this kid? The child frowned. Did Pedro know who he was? Pedro smiled impatiently, telling the Santo Niño that yes, he was aware. He was also aware of how his prayers and those of his cold, hungry children went unanswered. They prayed for easier winters, for protection from los indios, for food in their bellies. But El Santo Niño must only hear the prayers of the rich because they got those things. So, no, Pedro would be keeping his stolen chicken to himself this evening. He told the child to go ask the ricos if he wanted a favor. At that, El Santo Niño began to weep and wandered away down the path, his cries fading with the dying light. Pedro was pleased with how he'd dismissed the little brat, and he was enjoying the smell of the chicken on the spit when someone else approached from the path. He looked up and saw a lovely, serene woman in pale blue robes. It was La Virgen Maria, the mother of the Lord. He indicated with his hand that she could sit on the stone across from him. She, too, greeted him by name and asked him to share his meal with her. Pedro laughed at her, too. He hadn't shared with her son. Why would he share with her? She frowned. He knew who she was and yet refused to share with the mother of God? A mother who doesn't teach her child to answer the people who pray to him, he retorted. He told her how his family, all his village, was poor, cold, and hungry. They lived in fear of their enemies. They prayed to the Virgin and to her son. But they must be too busy in the comfortable houses of the rich to listen to poor villagers. So, no, Pedro wouldn't share his chicken. La Virgen began to weep, and rose and wandered away down the path after her son. Pedro was glad to be rid of that uppity chick. Soon it was full dark, the sparks from Pedro's fire drifting up toward the stars. The skin on the chicken was perfectly crisp, and just as he went to pull a leg off the bird, he saw a figure standing across from him. Her skull face shone silently in the firelight. He hadn't heard her approach. All the same, he rose to his feet, and he greeted her by name. Buenas noches, Doña Sebastiana. For there at his fire stood death, her arrows in their quiver and her bow at her side. She laughed like dry leaves and told him, Relájate, Pedro, siéntate. She wasn't there to collect him, but she'd been nearby and smelled a roasting chicken. Pedro did relax. He was honored to share a meal with La Muerte. And so Pedro's evening got stranger, sharing a not-quite-stolen chicken with death. They talked, even joked a little. When they had finished, 
She tossed the last of the bones in the fire and turned to him. She wondered. On the trail this evening, she'd met El Santo Nino and his mother, La Virgen, weeping with hunger and hurt feelings. She knew Pedro had turned them away. So why share his dinner with her? He wasn't scared, was he? He wasn't scared, in fact, even if she'd startled him. Pedro looked Doña Sebastiana in her empty eye sockets and told her the truth. She, death, was fair to all people, he said. The Lord and his mother played favorites, but not her. She was honest and would come for each of them one day. Rich, poor, sinner, saint, all of them, no exceptions. If they were all unimportant in the end, at least they were equally unimportant. So that was why. Death is fair. Pedro took a deep breath after being so uncharacteristically frank. He thought maybe she was smiling at him. It looked like a grin. Anyway, she nodded. She was pleased he saw it that way. She was fair. And because he had shared with her, she would share with him. Pedro wasn't sure he wanted a favor from La Doña Sebastiana. She said she would allow him to see her from now on. She was always around, but unseen. And now Pedro would see. He nodded silently, not sure he wanted to spend the rest of his days seeing death standing around wherever he went. She agreed it didn't sound like much, but if he was clever, he could use it. She told him to go home and tell everyone he'd had a vision, had been given a supernatural gift. It was true enough. He should tell everyone he was now a great curandero, a gifted healer. In three days, he would be called to the home of old Villalobos in his village. He was very ill, but not dying, though his family feared the worst. Pedro would know Villalobos wasn't dying because he would see death there, standing at the foot of the old man's bed. If she stood at the foot of the bed, Doña Sebastiana explained, that meant it wasn't the person's time, that they would recover and live. Pedro could rub them with herbs, give them tea, prayers, whatever, and they would heal regardless. And Pedro would gain a reputation as a great curandero. If she stood at the head of the bed, however, Pedro must declare that there was nothing he could do for the patient's time had come. And it was true. Doña Sebastiana always stood at a person's head in preparation to take their soul from this life to the hereafter. Thus, Pedro would add the attributes of wisdom and humility to his reputation as a healer. Pedro understood now. It was a tremendous gift, this ability to see death. With no industry required beyond spreading the word of his miraculous healing abilities, he could become famous, rich. Doña Sebastiana lifted a bony finger to give him a warning. One caution. He must never, ever attempt to move her or to dissuade her. If it wasn't a person's time, then they must live. If it was their time, then they must die. Moving her from the foot to the head or the head to the foot was forbidden. As Pedro had noted, la muerte was fair. He must never forget that. Pedro Ordimalas, do not deceive me, she said. You will not like the consequences. They agreed to meet in three days at the sickbed of old Villalobos, and then, with a rattle of bones and a sharp gust of wind, La Doña Sebastiana was gone into the night. 
Thereafter, events unfolded exactly as Doña Sebastiana had said. Sure enough, old Villalobos recovered from his fever and lived. Little by little, Pedro Ordimalas gained a reputation as a gifted curandero, and he became more and more comfortable with Doña Sebastiana, even casual since he saw her so frequently. They rarely spoke, but he considered her not just his patrona, but also something of a friend. She shared his secret, and because of her gift, he was able to provide for his family in a way he never could have with honest work. She didn't condemn him for his theft and selfishness at their first meeting, and now she facilitated this mockery of a career as a famous healer. Over time, though, Pedro came to take her and her complicity for granted. Many years after their first meeting, Pedro Ordimalas, the famous curandero, was summoned to the house of a wealthy landowner. Pedro knew him only by reputation. He was brutal with his household and his servants and used his money to manipulate church and government officials. Normally, this was the sort of man he'd have loved to see in the grave and to be standing over the hole in the ground so he could spit in it. He found himself hoping he would see La Doña Sebastiana standing by the rich man's head. However, when he arrived at the lovely villa, the rich man's children took him aside. They pleaded with Pedro to use all his skill and power to save their father. Then the man's son opened a wooden chest full of ten times as much gold as Pedro had made as a healer in all those years. It was his, if only he would heal their father by whatever powers necessary. He was led to the rich man's bed, where now his heart sank to see his old comadre at the man's head. In all the years of seeing her, Pedro had never touched her. But now he decided to try. He took her by her bony shoulders and led her to the foot of the bed. When he sat down, though, there she was back at the head. He moved her again. Again she appeared back where she began. On that second try, she had wagged her bony finger at him. On his third try, she shook her toothy head at him. On the fourth try, he spun her around to make her dizzy, and she remained where he left her. Pedro sprinkled some salt and herbs around the man and muttered a few prayers, upon which the man's eyes opened and he gasped for breath. The color returned to his face, and he took food for the first time in days. Within a few hours, he was out of bed and shouting at the servants. The man's children requested that Pedro stay the night, just to make sure their father was still well in the morning. They led him to a fine bedroom and thanked him again. Pedro was nervously pacing the floor when La Doña Sebastiana stepped out of the shadows. He was silent in his terror. But when she spoke, she didn't sound angry at all. First, she told him not to worry about the viejo, that the old man was fine and would continue to recover. Then she asked Pedro if he remembered the one condition she had given him. He did. With a dry throat and his tongue like paper, he repeated that she'd instructed him never to disobey her, never to alter the timing of another's healing or death, that if he did, he wouldn't like the consequences. No, Pedro, you probably won't, she said with a sigh like rattling bones. There was something she needed to show him. She led him to the door where he had entered, 
opening it not onto the hallway, but into a large cavern full of innumerable candles. They were short, tall, fat, narrow, leaning, straight, with bright flames or dim ones. Each had something written at its base, but Pedro couldn't read. Doña Sebastiana showed him two candles that stood near each other. One was tall with a bright flame, the other guttering and nearly burnt out. She told Pedro that each candle represented a life. The squatty one, nearly out, that was the old Rico. He was supposed to have died that night, around midnight. But the other, she indicated the tall one with the bright flame, was Pedro, had been Pedro. There was long life remaining and good health. Doña Sebastiana considered Pedro with all the depth of her vacuous eye sockets. When they first met, he had understood that she was fair. He had respected her for it. She was still fair, and he had forced her hand. When he moved her to the foot of the old man's bed, he had switched his own fate for the viejos. Pedro's eyes widened, and she shook her head. Lo siento, Pedro, she apologized. And she was sorry. She liked Pedro. But she was la muerte, and she was fair. She stepped back as she knocked an arrow, drew her bow, and sent the arrow straight through Pedro's heart. The squatty candle flickered and went out. Pedro Urdimalas is bested by death in the end of this story, but only after having given El Niño Jesús and his Holy Virgin Mother a piece of his mind, and after having fleeced his neighbors with death's complicity for years. If you're familiar with European folklore, you may have heard this story as Der Gavato Todd, Godfather Death. The Grimm brothers curated and published it in their collection of German tales. It's close, but not exactly the same. In the Grimm tale, a man is looking for a godfather for his son, and he receives a few supernatural offers. He turns down the Lord, because in his mind, Jesus plays favorites. He turns down the devil, because he deals in lies and deceit. He chooses Death, who is fair and powerful. Death gives his godson an elixir that will heal anyone who is ill, unless Death indicates that it is the person's time to die. Using the elixir, the young man becomes a famous physician. Eventually, the godson disobeys death in order to save a princess he hopes to marry, but the candle of his own life is snuffed out in exchange for hers. There are some important differences. Death is a man, so there's that, and he's much more authoritarian and less jocular in the Grimm's telling. Doña Sebastiana seems like the type to shout boo at people, just to chuckle at how they jump when she shows herself. In the German version, the father of the child chooses death over the Lord and the devil, that is, given a choice between the archetypes of good and evil, he opts for the third morally neutral option. Pedro Ordimalas affiliates himself, not his son, with death, and only after having spurned two personifications of goodness and divine providence. In that element especially, the godson of Grimm's telling lacks the subversive picaresque spirit that typifies the Spanish and Latin American versions. The moral of both stories is don't screw with death, 
but the themes and the overall flavors present in the nuances set the stories apart as examples of distinct narrative traditions. The Hispanic picaresque orientation to life, death, and deity is embedded in storytelling and attitudes in the modern Southwest. It's evident even in non-Hispanic Wild West figures like Pecos Bill, and the ways in which we glorify real-life figures like the Earp Brothers and Calamity Jane. Just like the Picaro, we enjoy their stories for the wit, the irreverence, and the mischief. Other Pedro Ordimala stories see him conniving his way out of huge gambling debts. He tricks the saints and God into making promises only to take unfair advantage of those promises later on. He makes life difficult for the residents of limbo, purgatory, heaven, and even hell with his jackassery. In one story, a very annoyed Satan sends death after Pedro, the death that carries an axe or a scythe, depending on the telling. Because of loophole wording and a promise he exacted from St. Peter, Pedro is immune to the blows of death's blade. So that death, death with a blade, calls upon her sister, Doña Sebastiana, the death that slays with an arrow. She arrives and dispatches Pedro Ordimalas, sending him along to perpetrate even more trickery in the afterlife. What's notable about these tales is the Picaro's sense of fairness and justice, and how he transgresses social norms of respect and respectability. Not only is he rarely punished, he's often rewarded and certainly admired. Latin Americans, including Hispanics in the Southwest, are often stereotyped as dedicated Catholics who offer blind devotion to God, the saints, and the clergy. In real life, the devout have generally put some thought into it, as have the impious. Reality is always more complex. Folklore, history, and modern daily life are rich with counterexamples of doubt and subversion. Pedro's attitude towards death, that she deserves more reverence than even God because she treats everyone alike, is a more salient theme than you might think. Earlier I mentioned La Santa Muerte, and how her cult has grown in Mexico in the last few decades. In some people's worship, she has supplanted the most iconic of Mexican saints, Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe, the Mexican manifestation of the Virgin Mary. With continued migration and cultural exchange between Mexico and the United States, and to and from the Southwest in particular, the veneration of La Santa Muerte is on the rise in the U.S., too. She's a folk saint, not a canonized one, and she isn't popular with officials in the Catholic Church. In some places, she's been banned. It doesn't seem to matter. La Santa Muerte attracts followers for the same reason Pedro Ordimalas shows her respect. Her impartiality and her apathy towards moralizing and judgments. She's popular in Mexico City, especially poor neighborhoods and those with large criminal constituents. You'll find La Santa Muerte in Guadalajara, Monterrey, Hermosillo. You'll find her in Los Angeles, Houston, and as far afield as Chicago and Montreal. La Santa Muerte is the patron saint of those no other saint wants to patronize. Saint Jude, or San Judas Tadeo, may be the patron saint of hopeless causes, but believers will tell you that La Muerte's reach is greater even than his. While there are important differences between Doña Sebastiana and the modern Mexican Santa Muerte, their appeal is the same. Fairness, equitability. For those who feel that God, the Virgin, and the saints have turned a deaf ear to them, who sense judgment and shame when they turn to clergy, 
There's obvious appeal to a powerful, supernatural figure who doesn't care if your works are good or evil, because it's not her jurisdiction. She isn't evil, she isn't the devil. She isn't God, either. She is death. She is straightforward and powerful, though there is a darkness to her power. And so La Santa Muerte occupies a strange new cultural niche, that of narco-saint, as in patron saint of the narcotraficantes. Her power and patronage are accessible to her devotees without regard to sinfulness or righteousness. It's easy to see how drug traffickers, thieves, coyotes, pimps, prostitutes, addicts, and others who populate the underbelly of society could easily feel alienated by the veneration of the Lord, His Virgin Mother, and the Holy Saints. Somewhere in there it becomes awkward to pray for protection and success in your endeavors when you know that your bread and butter fuels social decay. So you pray to La Muerte. A critical element to La Muerte's power as a folk saint and a narco-saint is her antiquity. I've mentioned the European roots of the Doña Sebastiana and La Muerte figures, but just as influential, probably more so, in Mexican and Mexican-American culture, is the deep substratum of pre-Columbian veneration of death personified. Unless you've been living under a rock, you've seen how the syncretic festival Dia de Muertos, or Day of the Dead, has expanded well beyond its fused Catholic and pre-Columbian roots to go international. We all saw the movie Coco, right? Death-faced figures abound without necessarily being morbid. The fancy Catrinas we associate with Dia de Muertos may wear girdles, lace, and froofy hats, but the skull-faced Aztec god Micantecutli and his wife Mictecasihuatl ruled the dead and the underworld in fashionable jewelry made of human bones and owl feathers. Recall that an owl perches on La Santa Muerte's shoulder. The Aztec mother goddess, Coatlicue, is a destroyer as well as a creator, demonstrated by the skull belt she uses to hold up her rattlesnake skirt. A large minority of Maya deities are involved in the running of Xibalba, the land of the dead. And that's just some of what we know about the death deities in pre-Columbian Mexico. All these ancient pieces meld together in Mexican Catholic culture, where La Muerte is the dark counterpart to La Virgen de Guadalupe. Both represent the divine feminine, maternal power entrusted with the parentheses of mortality, birth and death. But La Santa Muerte is a mother with no favorites, a mother who requires no charity nor penitence. For worshippers of La Santa Muerte, the pale, skeletal face that appears in the final moment will be a familiar one, devoid of love, perhaps, but also devoid of judgment, an unbiased messenger and psychopomp to the next plane of existence. Sure, her badass factor is appealing to those on the social fringes because, come on, skull face. But the certainty of her scales is comforting. Within the paradigm of Christian belief in mythology, where God, his mother, his saints, and angels have been presented through the centuries as alternately benevolent, wrathful, loving, vengeful, forgiving, and punishing, religion can get confusing. Death, though, is constant. La muerte never changes. You may not know the time and place of your appointment with her, but you know it will happen, and you know the outcome. 
Given hundreds of thousands of lives with few other certainties, the appeal of taking death as a Santa Patrona is starkly clear. Farther to the north, that is, here in the southwest, the Puebloans dealt with death as a divine power. The Hopi called him Masau, or Masawa, the skeleton man. As a Kachina, he wore a white, dome-like mask, a vague approximation of a skull, with large, empty orifices where eyes and mouth would be, usually ringed in red. Sometimes colored dots adorned the skull, representing clouds. He was death, though he participated in many aspects of life. He was a prankster, friendly and ever-present. He played jokes, but his role was generally a helpful one. While the other Kachinas were regulated in their movements, present only for their respective dances and ceremonies, Masawa was free to roam, the sight of his bone-white headdress with its vacant eyes a reminder that death comes and goes as it will. These beliefs easily worked their way into Spanish tales involving the personification of death. There's a beauty and a frustration to syncretism. It's hard to find the seams. As a personification of death, Doña Sebastiana is a parallel to Mixteca Cihuatl, Masawa, and La Santa Muerte. She's a little spooky, a little off-putting, but she's reliable. That's why she was honored with her own little death cart, why she was included in the religious processions held by Hispanic communities in the Southwest. When I was a kid, my grandfather told us a story, an old one. I'm sure it was apocryphal, but it made a point. He spoke of a procession during Holy Week, one that wound out of the central plaza and up the rocky path to the Campo Santo, the cemetery. Observers and participants from the community lined the path as the procession passed. Doña Sebastiana, with an arrow in her bow, grinned at them all from her goat-drawn cart. In one fateful moment, one of the wheels hit a jutting stone in the dirt path, jostling the figure. The arrow in her bow flew into the crowd, hitting a girl in the throat. She was killed. The story scared me. It was probably meant to. My grandpa was a bit of a picaro himself. But something else that sticks with me was the way he told the story, with a kind of fatalism. The girl had died, and it was sad, but it was meant to be. Her death, so sudden and so public, was a reminder to the entire community that La Doña Sebastiana was ever-present and powerful. Death strikes when she is meant to, and unavoidably so. That doesn't need to be terrifying. Not unless you're a picaro who pushes her too far. Thank you for joining me for another strange and spooky tale out of the Southwest. I'm your host, Adrienne Montoya, and you've been listening to Southwest Gothic. I hope you've enjoyed today's stories. For more information, including sources and music, visit southwestgothic.com and check out the show notes under the Notes and Credits tab. If you've never seen a death cart, check out the link in the show notes to a genuine article, a late 19th century piece from New Mexico. You can follow the show on Facebook at Southwest Gothic Podcast or on Instagram at southwest.gothic. I'll be back in a couple of weeks with another strange and spooky Southwestern story for you. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.